But let's begin the last church history class. I know you're sad as I am. So this is our last one on church history for this course. Just about got everything I wanted to get in. There will be a little bit today we probably won't get much into, if at all, the Pentecostal charismatic movement. I want to, but I've, I've done that in other places. You can look up on our website under past equipping classes, and I have done a whole thing on tongues and prophecy, a couple of classes actually in the theological section. Today, though, we're looking at this period from 1900 1950. And that almost brings us up to the modern times. It'll at least help us understand why churches are so different and the different mindsets out there. It's not going to cover the seeker-friendly movement. We're not going to cover the woke stuff that just recently came up. But you see some of the roots of that back in this time period. So let me open in prayer and then we'll begin. Lord, we thank you this morning for all that you've taught us throughout this time in church history. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessings that you've given us, that you've taught us your word, and we can evaluate some of these things in the past with the right mindset, the right heart. Help us to stay true to your word, even though the world often pulls the church in different directions and some leaders respond the wrong way. We pray, Lord, that we would keep going back to your word and ask, what does it say? What does it say? And so let us be discerning. Let us use wisdom. And the time that we live in today, in Jesus' name, amen. Dividing line. So what is going to happen now that liberalism has taken hold? We looked at some of the liberals last week. We looked at some of the liberal movements in Germany and how that then came to the United States. What is going to happen to the church that was pretty conservative? It had become more Arminian due to Charles Finney and due to the revivalism of the 1800s. But still, in general, conservative. But now liberalism comes to America, and it's going to have some effects on the church. We also have the rise of cults. We talked about cults a few weeks ago, Jehovah's Witnesses. We talked about the Seventh-day Adventists, the Spiritists, the Christian science movement. Also, you have Charles Darwin's theories on the evolution of man coming to America, being accepted. Even in conservative seminaries, they would accept some of his thinking, and they were a bit confused on how to answer it. Nietzsche was also writing his nihilistic atheism. And this was catching on as people grew up in churches, and they were tired of hearing about the fact that they were sinners, and they were tired of hearing about all of this preaching against their sin. And suddenly, there's men like this who are writing against God, who are being an atheistic nihilist, which means there's nothing to life, there's nothing to existence. We're here for a while and then we just poof, we're gone. There's no meaning to it all. And then higher criticism, which we looked at last week, all the German higher critics attacking the inerrancy of Scripture, attacking the sufficiency of Scripture. So that all comes to America and we're really good at then taking that and and really marketing that in America and taking it to the rest of the world. And so that's what happened. America takes in this stuff. It affects the American church. And within 50, 60 years, we then take that to the world. And it's still happening today with the missionary movement. You always have to ask if somebody's a missionary, what kind of missionary are they? Are they the Bible preaching, church planting kind of missionary? Are they the social works kind of missionary? Are they the seeker export kind of missionary? Are they the a Pentecostal missionary with prosperity gospel? You have to ask those questions. So here's all the background that goes into late 1800s, early 1900s. There's also a growth of this modernistic thinking that science is what we need. We need science. Evolution is, is, is a scientific theory. And what we need is science to prove God and science to prove the Bible. And man became very scientific at this time. We have the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. All of these experiments, machinery, weapons being produced for World War I and then World War II. And so what tells us truth is science. Science tells us what truth is, or that's what people began to say. And the church felt pulled in that direction too. If we're going to hang with the society, if we're going to survive, many church people say today and back then, if we're going to survive, we must have science prove these concepts in the Bible. There's also a social gospel movement that works out of German liberalism. We looked at liberalism, but we didn't talk much about the social gospel. You'll remember 
I think it was Reitzel or Reitzel from Germany, said that really the gospel is just about improving man's lot in life, helping your brother, helping mankind. So this becomes a social gospel. It takes off. You have a lot of poor people on the street in the 1800s. And so in America and, and even in London and, and England, you have this idea of helping the poor. And that's really what the gospel is about. It's not about spiritual salvation, but it's more, they would say, about helping your fellow man. We're all, they use the term for the fatherhood of God. God is the father of all. And we're all brothers. And not just in the we're all sons of Adam kind of thing. But we're all going to heaven together is the idea. So let's help each other along. So the result is that it undoes most of the mainline denominations. Remember we talked a bit about those. You have the Lutheran denomination, Methodist, Presbyterian denominations. And also the Church of Christ had formed up in the late 1800s, Disciples of Christ. And this is really affecting them. Because they don't know what to do. They've grown really large. They have a lot of money. And how are we going to stay relevant? That's always a question in the, in the modern church for some reason. How are we going to stay relevant to the people? Now that the Bible's in question, what are we going to do to stay relevant? So in response, you have Bible scholars, conservative, who established some principles. Let's just draw the line in the sand, the conservatives said, and this is a good idea. Let's state on paper what we believe. Let's outline the essence of biblical Christianity. It's being attacked. There's all these liberals saying this thing. People in the pew are confused. Churches are preaching a different gospel. So let's state what the essentials are. And so in 1878, they drew this up. And that became known as the Niagara Creed because there was a Bible conference that met in Niagara, near Niagara Falls there. And they would have this every summer. Remember, this is the time of tent revivals and you would come out and camp for the week. So you would come out to this Bible conference and there was teaching on the Bible, there was teaching on prophecy, many different things. We wouldn't sign off on every single thing that they, they were teaching there. But these were generally conservatives. These were people who believed the Bible was true. And they wanted the Bible to be taught in churches. And so they just laid these out. These principles were the foundation for a movement later called fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is, in essence, back to the fundamentals of Christianity. Today, fundamentalism has a, has a bad connotation, and we'll look at that. But originally, it is, let's get back to the fundamental. Just like in sports, you want to get back to the fundamental things. How do you catch a ball? How do you throw a ball? In football, how do you block? How do you tackle? What is the essence? What is the basic statement of faith that Christians must believe to even be a Christian? Because that had been questioned by liberalism. On the broader front, the dispensational organizers of this conference, this Niagara Bible Conference, were even joined by those who didn't agree with their end times doctrine. B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen joined them, not at the conference necessarily, but in this fight of their Reformed Presbyterian denominations, which were being overrun. So everybody's sort of being overrun by the liberal movement, which has come to America. Here's B.B. Warfield. They were at Princeton. These were two great reform scholars here, J. Gresham Machen, who wrote a book on liberalism and Christianity. And he essentially said they're two different things. Liberalism is not Christianity. It's not a type of Christianity. It's completely separate from Christianity. And eventually he would go on to, to found a different college and seminary because Princeton had gone so liberal and they weren't willing to stand up to the liberal teachings that were going on there. So these early fundamentalists came together and they wanted to commit to the authority of Scripture. That's, that's the big issue. When you want to change a doctrine, you can't just invent something and still say you're a Christian. You have to go after Scripture first because otherwise God gets to tell us what Christianity is. But if we remove the authority of God from Scripture, then we can insert our own thinking. And that's what happened early on. And so these men are trying to fight against that. Questions, though, arose on whether or not they should separate. Should the should the big denominations at the time, should conservatives separate from those denominations? And there was a lot of questions on this issue. Or should you stay? And today we still see this in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's a lot of critical race theory going on and there's a lot of divisiveness. And then last week, you know, this report comes out about all the sexual abuse that's happened in the SBC and the cover-up. Well, over the last few years, churches have been leaving. But then there are those who say, no, we should stay and we should try to make it more conservative like they once did in the 70s and 80s in the SBC. 
Well, that was the question way back in the early 1900s. Should they stay in those denominations or not? And eventually, they had to talk about separation. That became the defining mark of the fundamentalist movement. All fundamentalists at the time, agreeing on the fundamentals of the faith, agreed that they had to separate at some point. You just can't, if your whole denomination is moving liberal, all the people who control it, often they own the buildings and the property. If everyone's going liberal, then at what point does it become a sin to stay in that movement? Here's Phil Johnson looking back at that on the question of, do we have fellowship with them or do we fight their bad doctrine? He says, one thing you'll, you'll, notice, you'll quickly notice if you make even a casual study of historical theology is this. The history of the church is a long chronicle of doctrinal development that runs from one profound controversy to the next. And we've seen that since we started this class back in late September, early October, is one controversy after the next. And that sharpens the church and that helps us think properly. He says, in one sense, it is sad that the history of the church is so marred by doctrinal conflicts. But in another sense, that is precisely what the apostles anticipated. Even while the New Testament was still being written, the church was contending with serious heresies and dangerous false teachers who seemed to spring up everywhere. This was so much a universal problem that Paul made it one of the qualifications of every elder that he be strong in doctrine and able to refute those who contradict. So the church has always been beset by heretics and false teachings, and church history is full of the evidence of this. And so he continues by listing a number of pertinent references from the Bible, and he says that Scripture contains all the following commands. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So if it's possible, we ought to be at peace. But also, Jude 3, beloved, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So when you're talking to somebody who has a different view, you just need to ask, is this an essential doctrine? Is this something that the Bible is clear on? And if it is, you need to defend that. You need to defend that in your discussions, in your debates or whatever with them. And not just simply say, well, you know, we're all brothers here. It's okay if you don't believe in Jesus as God. That's common today. Everybody just get along. Be nice. You know, it's like my kids just get along at the table. Stop fighting. Stop arguing. Well, that works great in your family. But when it comes to doctrinal essentials of the faith, we can't just get along and act like we're all of the same uh, group of Christians. We're not. Clearly, there are two extremes to be avoided, avoided, Phil Johnson says. One is the danger of being so narrow and intolerant that you create unnecessary divisions. So we don't want to divide over everything. Color the carpet, right? Whether Elijah should wear a tie every, every Sunday. You know, who gets to clean the pool? And people do get mad about that sometimes. But not the pool specifically, but silly stuff. We don't want to divide over everything. The other problem is being too broad-minded sinfully tolerant, so ecumenically minded that you settle for a shallow false unity with people whom we are commanded to avoid or whose arrows we are morally obligated to refute. It would seem that the only way to be faithful to all above commands is to have a sound and biblical understanding how to distinguish between core doctrines and peripheral ones. You need a doctrinal statement. You need an essential statement so you can understand, so you can know here are the essentials. And without that, well, you probably have been to churches that don't have a doctrinal statement. You don't really know what they believe. And you're not quite sure where they stand on certain issues. And sometimes you seem to hear one thing from the pulpit and another thing from the class and another thing from members of the church. And so what is it that makes a Christian a Christian? And what are the essentials of the faith? Phil Johnson says, But search for serious material that carefully discusses biblical guidelines for making such distinctions wisely. And you'll come up mostly dry. This is an issue I fear most Christians have not considered as soberly and carefully as we should. And it would be my assessment that one of the crying needs of the church in this age of mindless postmodern subjectivity, he's talking about today, is a clear, careful, and thorough biblical understanding of when it's time to fight and when it's time to fellowship. Denominations are still moving liberal. Individual churches are still moving liberal or are we're all over the place. Prosperity gospel, NAR. When is it time to leave? When is it time to try to make a difference? And when is it a time to leave? So looking back to this controversy over the fundamentalists and the, the modernists, the controversy that arose between them will help us, I think, in that. So the question, who are we to separate from and why? 
Because people will often say you're too divisive. Doctrine divides. And it does divide. It divides truth from error. We ought not to divide over silly things, but we have to divide over essential things. What are the fundamental issues over which we should separate from other Christian ministries and other self-professed believers? The major reason that we don't work with a lot of parachurch ministries, even as a church, is because of their statement of faith. It's either weak or, or not biblical. Here's Spurgeon. He went through a downgrade controversy. We're not going to talk much about Spurgeon. I wish we had time. But since we've been taking the American stream, we haven't been able to get back to Britain and see how Spurgeon is doing over there in the 1800s. But he went through this effect of liberalism in his association. He was part of a Baptist association. And it was accepting members, churches, that were no longer believing in the Bible. And he said, whether others do so or not, I have felt the power of the text. Come out from among them and be ye separate. And have quitted both union and association. So these were the Baptist groups he was a part of. Once for all, this is forced upon me, not only by my convictions, but also by, my, by the experience of the utter usefulness, uselessness, uselessness of attempting to deal with the evil, except by personally coming out from it. So he said, there's nothing else I have left to do. The whole group is either tolerant of these unbiblical beliefs or accepting them as true. And he says, that there comes a time where I have to leave. And of course, they dogged him on it. The, pa- the newspapers in London dogged him on it. it. It caused his health to go even into a worse spiral. And eventually he died as a result of all the stress and pressure and the dise- diseases he already had underlying. Uh, he ends up dying because of that. Some say he died of a broken heart. Broken heart for his denomination, fellow Baptists who were moving liberal. There's Spurgeon. Make sure you read a lot on him. We're not covering him much in this class, but he's well worth your time. Numbers of good brethren, this is Spurgeon still, numbers of good brethren in different ways remain in fellowship with those who are undermining the gospel. And they talk of their conduct as though it were a loving course which the Lord will approve of in the day of his appearing. We cannot understand them. The bounden duty of a true believer towards men who profess to be Christians, and yet deny the word of the Lord and reject the fundamentals of the gospel is to come out from among them. If it be said that efforts should be made to produce reform, we agree with the remark. But when you know that they will be useless, what is the use? So one of the strategies to keep everybody together is to keep promising something will be done. Something will be done. We will reform this. Just hang on for a little while. And years go by and years go by. And suddenly, do you want your church associated? with a group that doesn't believe in Christ or the gospel or the scriptures. He says, where the basis of association allows error and almost invites it, and there is an evident determination not to alter that basis, nothing remains to be done inside, which can be of any radical service. Complicity with error will take from the best of men the power to enter any successful protest against it. Our present sorrowful protest is not a matter of this man or that, this error or that, but a principle. It's the principle that we must stick with Scripture. So moving back to the U.S. here, we have the Niagara Creed, uh, the Niagara Bible Conference there. Conflicts arise then in Presbyterian circles. And the Presbyterians in Portland decide, I think this is Portland, Maine, decide that they're no longer going to put up with that. They come up with a basic fundamental statement of faith. At that time, everybody was in the PC USA, Presbyterian Church USA. And so they affirmed inerrancy. In 1910, a general assembly of that church passed the doctrinal deliverance of 1910, known as the five-point deliverance. This is what they said. There is an inerrancy of Scripture, Scriptures without error. This, this is a good statement. The virgin birth and deity of Christ, they affirm that. The substitutionary atonement through God's grace and human faith, they affirm that. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the authenticity of Jesus' miracles. Now, if you know anything about the PCUSA today, they don't really affirm any of that. But this is in 1910, and they were trying to, the people in the denomination were trying to stand firm on the fundamentals. It didn't take very long, though, before they moved away from it. So between 1910 and 1915, a set of books were published by these men who were preaching against error, preaching against 
the liberalism. And they call this set the fundamentals. You can still get them in a book set. They expanded on those five that came out of this. And they continued to write. They talked about liberal theology, higher criticism, Roman Catholicism, socialism, cults, and Darwinian evolution. And the founders, who are called fundamentalists, champion the exegetical approach to life and doctrine. Let's go to the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? Let's exegete. Exegete means to take the meaning from the Bible. Let's use that as we live and as we believe certain things, whatever the Bible tells us. So those who agreed with those five fundamentals and considered them worth fighting for were called fundamentalists because they believed in the fundamentals. The man who came up with this term, Curtis Lee Law, said, We suggest that those who still cling to the great fundamentals and who mean to do battle royal for the fundamentals shall be called fundamentalists. A good term. And today somebody might accuse you of being a fundamentalist if you believe the Bible. So you might want to say, well, what do you mean? Do you mean the fundamentalists who separate over whether we should drink Sprite or Coke or every other silly thing? Or do you mean we love the fundamentals of Scripture, the doctrine of the Bible? Yes to that one. Hopefully you don't divide over what kind of soft drink you like. 1922 to 36, this controversy erupts. It goes very public. Newspapers pick it up. This is a big issue in the United States. Fundamentalists began to lose control of their denominations. All the major denominations began to go liberal. And fundamentalists split off from that. Here's what one historian said, Michael Canham. He says, eventually, however, many fundamentalists realized they could not purge out the sin from their denominations. And so they withdrew to establish new fellowships. Examples from this era include the exodus of Presbyterian conservatives from the PCUSA. Under the leadership of J. Gresham Machen, he left Princeton and he went and founded in 1929 Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He also started a new Presbyterian denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in 1936. And a Baptist split out from a liberal Northern Baptist group and they are called the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, GARB. And that started in 1932. These were churches leaving liberal denominations and forming conservative denominations. And then we have one of the more famous of the modernists, of the liberals, we'll call them, Harry Emerson Fosdick. So this, this debate erupts in American Christianity. And because most people call themselves Christians at the time, it's a, it's a national issue. Not one that you would necessarily read about in history books, but it was certainly present. And a famous sermon was preached by this man, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Fosdick was a true liberal. He called himself a liberal. He even called himself a heretic, according to the old traditional beliefs. And he graduated from a liberal school. He said, no one would hire me because I'm so liberal. I'm such a heretic. And the, the liberals of his day loved it. He went from church to church. He was a Baptist, but he got hired in Presbyterian churches. And then John D. Rockefeller said, I will build you a building and it'll be the best church in New York and you can come and preach there. And so he did. And he preached a sermon that was later turned into a book, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? So he was trying to encourage the troops of the liberal movement and saying, let's not let them win. Are we going to let them win this debate? Shall the fundamentalists win? And it even got on the front of Time magazine he did there as one of the major Christian people of that time. Here's what he believed. He questioned the historicity of miracles and the virgin birth. He denied the inerrancy of the scriptures. He denied the atonement as a propitiatory sacrifice, meaning that it satisfied the wrath of God. He did not accept the second coming of Christ as a literal event to be looked at, looked for in the clouds. So he didn't even think Christ was going to return. These were his basic beliefs. Now today, people often will, will sometimes hide these beliefs. Online, they, they won't hide them, though. But sometimes you're talking to somebody and they won't necessarily come out and say these things. The, the early liberals in America were proud of these. It made them more modern, more scientific. And they would state them on their website. They would just say, oh, they didn't have websites, but they would state them on their doctrinal statement. Doctrinal statement. The reason I say website, because I'm thinking about how many liberal churches today, if you went to their website, could you find any of this? They're not going to say it. They're just going to say, we believe in the Jesus, we believe in God. You know, we acknowledge the Bible. Back then, if they had a website, this would be on it. If they 
but they didn't. They would just tell you that's what they that's what they believe. I mean, it was a good thing. It's sort of like today, LGBTQT, all that is a thing that is affirmed by churches, and that sends a signal that that they agree with it. And sometimes they'll put that on their website, but they won't put these kinds of things. Some do, but most don't. Here's what Fosdick said in this sermon. There are many opinions in the field of modern controversy, concerning which I'm not sure whether they are right or wrong, but there is one thing I'm sure of. Courtesy and kindliness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Op- opinions may be mistaken. Love never is. So we read that today and we think, oh yeah, tolerance is good. And maybe you think that's a great thing. Well, you're probably thinking of tolerance in the sense of physical harm because we've seen violence. We see violence in schools. These people weren't fighting in the streets. They weren't marching. They weren't charging into churches and causing disruptions. This was a, a theological debate, a spiritual debate. And he's saying we ought not to call one another non-Christian or unbelievers. This is just all about tolerance. Let's be humble. He thought it was a penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when the world is dying of great needs. Now, you're more, you're more likely to hear this. Don't argue about doctrine. How many people have you evangelized today? That's typically the kind of thing we would hear in our area. right? We don't have time to sit around and argue about doctrine. There are souls that need saved. Well, whether it's this argument or that that we hear today, doctrine matters. It's important. Now, if that's all we're doing, if we're just sitting in our house, just reading books and never talking to anybody about what we're learning and telling our, our neighbors and loved ones about Christ, well, then that's a problem. But that wasn't the issue here. The issue was, what do you believe? He went on to say, not a single thing at stake in the controversy on which depends the salvation of human souls. Even though he denied the virgin birth, he denied Christ was coming back, he denied the atonement of Christ. He said, there's nothing about the salvation of human souls in that. He said the real need was not wrangling over doctrinal matters. He's using the Apostle Paul's terminology, wrangling. But working so that men in their personal lives and in their social relationships should know Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds great, except the Christ he's talking about is not the Christ that we know about in Scripture. He says, if then you ask what a true liberalism is, I should say that it is one that pays little attention to the arcs that divide, but cares with all its heart about the religion that unites. So he said the old beliefs, the belief that Jesus came to save people from their sin, those kinds of beliefs, the virgin birth, that's like the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Old Testament, people, you know, they fell before the Ark of the Covenant. They couldn't even see it. And they took it out in battle. And it was good for a time. But there was a time when the Ark of the Covenant disappeared. And it was no longer needed. And he says, some of these old doctrines, they're like that. It just divides people today. He says, they call me a heretic. Well, I am a heretic. If conventional orthodoxy is the standard. Now, how many, how many false teachers would say that last statement right there? This is what I'm saying. You... You can talk to them. You can look at their website. You can read their books. They will not say this. But in this time period, it, you're proud to be a liberal. He says, I should be ashamed to live in this generation and not be a heretic. And we're not talking about politics. When I say liberal, in most contexts in the church, I say liberal. It is liberal in your theology. Liberal means just you're just wide open to all kinds of views. And the liberals became those who attacked the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. So this got picked up in many newspapers. There's some great cartoons of that day. Uh, here's, here's a title of an article. We do not fear Mr. Gray's hell, say modernists. Pastor-elect of the Unitarian Church answers arguments of fundamentalists. Tells of Bible myths. Here's a cartoon. It's two faces of the new evangelicalism. This is one that we'll talk about a little bit later in this slideshow. Even the conservatives end up dividing. And one side, the fundamentalist says, Amen, brother, I believe in the full inspiration of this Bible. And the modernist says, Yes, of course, I believe in the higher criticism of the Bible. So there is a difference over how we view the Bible. Are we under Scripture? Are we beside it, critiquing it, taking it apart? Here's the Siamese twins. There are two men standing here. One's evolution, one's higher criticism. They're joined together. And higher criticism says denial of the supernatural in the word. And evolution, denial of the supernatural in the world. And the guy reading the Bible says, stand out of my light. 
you're, you're making my Bible reading dark. You've probably seen this one. This is a popular one even today online. The Descent of the Modernist. And this is the slippery slope argument. That you start down the stairs and you just keep going. And eventually there's even a dark force holding your hand to help you down. So there's Christianity. You take a next step down. Bible is not infallible. The next step, man not made in God's image. The next step, no miracles, no virgin birth, no deity, no atonement, no resurrection, agnosticism, atheism. Now, there weren't a lot of agnostics and atheists in those days. They were starting to become more common. But we can really see this today, those last couple of steps, as more and more people have affirmed their atheistic beliefs. Here's one I like. True science never wears blinders. So the modernists would say, we have science on our side. And this guy is holding up the evidence of Christ's miracles. And he's calling it into question. And he's got blinders on. He can't see it over here because his blinder says miracles can't happen. He's already decided that. So when he comes to the Bible, he says miracles can't happen. And they quote here from, I think, 1 Corinthians or maybe Colossians. Science falsely so-called. This idea that the knowledge that the world has is some kind of special knowledge. And the Apostle Paul says in Scripture that it's not. It's falsely called knowledge. Here's another historian. When Machen left Princeton, it was not because Princeton had become liberal. It hadn't fully become liberal at that point. It had not. It was because Princeton had become indifferentist. People like Ross Stevenson and Charles Erdman taught the fundamentals, but they objected to the bad manners of Machen and others who attempted to expel liberals from the denomination. We don't agree with them, these, these sort of middle-of-the-road people. I don't know, what would you call them? They're mediating. They have the middle path between the two extremes. And they're moderates, you might call them today. And these are just bad manners. I mean, you don't start kicking people out of the denomination. You don't kick people out. You don't say that they're liberal and try to get them fired from the seminary. From the very emergence of fundamentalism as a distinguishable move- movement, late teens and early 20s of the 1900s, attitude was always the thing that set fundamentalists apart from other evangelicals. The fundamentalists not only believed the fundamentals, as many others did, they were willing to do battle royal over it. This, this phrase keeps coming up. Or if you put an E on it, battle royale. They're really willing to fight for what they believe. That battle took two forms. First, there was a genuine intellectual struggle for the ideas. Second, and more visibly, there was a power struggle for the control of Christian institutions. So, It's a debate in writing and sermons and books back and forth on what we believe. And then who's going to control the denominations, the seminaries? Fundamentalism has always been characterized by a determination that Christians cannot make common cause with apostates in the work of the Lord. So he says, for example, J. Gresson Machen was not content with the mere affirmation of the fundamentals, because everybody could say that at Princeton. He fought to get liberals out of the denomination. Failing that, he established new institutions. Machen's most bitter enemies, however, were not the liberals. They were the people whom he called indifferentists. Indifferentists believed the fundamentals, but they were decidedly not fundamentalists. They were the orthodox believers who wanted to keep organizational peace, that they made peace with the liberals. So can't we just all get along? Can't we just all get along and be happy? It was kind of the idea. And you'll hear this today. Often people will say, you know, doctrine divides. Why are you so divisive? Why are you so doctrinal? Can't we just all get along? We can't call other people non-Christian. That's not right. Well, we can if we go to the Bible. And the Bible calls them that. If the Bible says, like Paul, that these are false brethren because of what they believe, then we can. We can't play God and we can't say, we know everybody's heart and all of that. Well, we do know their fruit, Jesus says, and when they say, I have denied Jesus Christ as Lord, well, that's a pretty clear sign. I have denied Jesus as a son of God. I have denied the good news of salvation in Christ. So here's the early fundamentalists. They agreed on these doctrines. They came to disagree on how to apply them, though. They said separation can be applied in different ways. You can separate in local relationships while remaining in a national organization that included liberals. You could also separate from liberal denominations, but fellowship with conservatives still in those denominations. So you could stay or you could leave, but understand that some people had different opinions that were conservative and they could stay. A third option was separate from the liberal denominations and from all those who would not separate from them. So I'm leaving, and if you're staying, then we have no fellowship. 
Fourth, separate from everyone except those of one's own denominational affiliation. So there are no other Christians other than the denomination that I'm in, would be that view. So these are how different churches and different people handled it. There became a disagreement primarily regarding the application of separation. And this led to a new development in the fundamentalist movement called the National Association of Evangelicals. This was a new organization in the 1940s and for United Action. Anytime there's some sort of national association, it always kind of sends my radar off. And there's still these today. This essentially split historic fundamentalism into two groups. So now you had the liberals, and then you had the fundamentalists, and now they split into two groups. And this isn't like they, they met in one meeting and said, we're splitting. This happens over the years as people diverge into two separate camps. There's the new evangelicals. You're very familiar with this. I'm sure this is a lot of more conservative type churches today. And they're the separatist fundamentalists. And so they had different organizations. The NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, was the new evangelicals. And then you had the ACC. I don't know what that stands for, but you can look it up. So here's a graphic showing the split. We haven't talked about Pentecostalism. I was hoping we'd have a few minutes today to show how that started in the early 1900s. So of the Protestants, the Pentecostals split off in the early 1900s. And then you have the mainline denominations splitting over the, the liberalism issue in the 1960s. By the time you get really from the 40s to the 80s, there's these two different groups, two different groups. And you have new evangelicals and separatist fundamentalists. Let's talk about the separatist fundamentalists. These, these are fun to talk about. By the 1950s, their defining mark was separatism. It's no longer the fundamentals, here's what we believe, but how much we're going to separate from everybody else. So here's what one historian said. Separation was a vital element, perhaps the vital element, the vital element in the fundamentalist mentality. It provided structure to the entire biblical message and was determinative of that message at numerous critical points. It was more than an injunction designed to protect the church and the individual believer from the ravages of the false teacher, though it was certainly that. In the fundamentalist system, it became part of the plan of God for the ages and one of the dominant themes of Scripture. So now they're reading back and they're saying, our separation is the main thing. It's not the fundamentals. It's not the essence of what is Christian and what is not. But it's the fact that we're willing to go the extra mile. We will separate from everyone and everything that is not Christian. We will not watch movies. We will not associate with a different denomination neighbor that we have. We will not tolerate any of that. We will make sure that everybody dresses according to our dress code that is very specific, not, not for specific purposes in ministry, but for just being a Christian. Canham says most early fundamentalists, such as Bob Jones Sr., he's probably the most famous of the, the more modern fundamentalists, W.B. Riley and fighting Bob Schuler stayed in their denominations as long as they could purge out the doctrinal heresy then tolerated and advocated. It was in applying primary separation, namely separating from apostate denominations, that the fundamentalists were faced with the question of secondary separation. So primary is, I'm part of the PCUSA, I'm leaving. That's one degree of separation. Two degrees of separation is, and if you stayed, I'm not associating with you either, and I don't even think you're saved. So today, we put it in today's context. Church leaves the SBC. Then they look back and they say, well, every church who stayed is apostate. That would be that kind of thinking. It's, it's a drastic form of fundamentalism, but it's very popular, especially in the U.S. during the middle of the 1900s. The question was, how were they to interact with those who were not apostate, but who remained in some sort of affiliation with apostate denominations? So some might say, well, you're a Christian if you stay, but you're not very sanctified. You're not at all sanctified. You're not holy. And that could bring into question your salvation, but we'll take you at your word. If you really want to get a, a, an inside look at this, John MacArthur went to Bob Jones University for one year and got in trouble, and I think he had to leave because of that. And uh, he talks about his experience there, and he talks about the fundamentalists, and he goes into Bob Jones 
Sr. and talks a bit about Billy Graham, which hopefully we'll get to in a minute. And so this came out back in April. The, the podcast has been around for a while. It's all the episodes I recommend. But this one specifically talks about fundamentalism. And I think he says about Bob Jones Sr., he put the fun back in fundamentalism or something like that, or took the fun out of fundamentalism. Bob Jones Sr. was another historic fundamentalist who opposed secondary separation and practice, if not an explicit statement. He is chosen as an illustration because the university which he founded and which bears his name today is one of the foremost advocates of secondary separation. And his son, Bob Jones Jr., has claimed that his view and that of his father were the same. Yet most of Bob Jones Sr.'s evangelistic campaigns were conducted with men still in the mainline denominations. Jones himself remained, retained his church membership in the United Methodist denomination until he was well into his 70s. So the university likes to think of itself, even today, under the sun as being very separatist, separate fundamentalist, secondary separation. But his father actually stayed in the denomination into his 70s, associated with those in the denomination that went liberal and also was very much still running with that crowd. While separatists connected with BJU are quick to point out correctly that their founder withdrew from liberal Methodist church in 1939, they're not so eager to reveal that Dr. Jones then placed his membership in another United Methodist Church. So yeah, he, he left this United Methodist Church over here, but put his membership in this United Methodist Church over here, Trinity Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Pastor by Bob Schuler, if there were, he kept it there until 1957. This was decades after liberalism had become an issue in that denomination. If you ever listen to Bob Jones Sr., he has a, a great voice. I mean, it's, it's very musical, melodic. You, you just want to listen to it, kind of like J. Vernon McGee, you just... J. Vernon McGee was very conservative in a different camp, but great preacher in some ways there. Bob Jones University got into some trouble over the years. They almost got their, their status taken away because they refused to allow interracial dating up until the 2000s. And finally, they had to repent of that and change their view. Today, many in separatist fundamentalist circles continue to place a high priority on separation, both primary and secondary. This has been called by Bob Jones University and the previous president, Bob Jones Jr., the very foundation and basis of fundamental witness and testimony, a major scriptural doctrine taught from Genesis to Revelation. See, there's too much focus on how much we've separated. It's more about what we've moved away from than the truth that we move towards and have moved towards in Christ. Here's a more biblical view, one that we practice here. On the one hand, we find that fundamentalist application of separation from fellow Christians is often too extreme, too knee-jerk, too inconsistent. On the other hand, we all know that the new evangelical application of separation, which I'll talk about in a moment, to also be unacceptable. Because in practice, it's a policy of non-separation. So there's those two groups, the separatist fundamentalists and the new evangelical and today, it's, it's obvious. There was a debate for decades whether the new evangelicalism was too tolerant. And people who said it was were, were labeled as too fundamentalists. Well, it's obvious if you look around today at some of the institutions and the denominations that new evangelicals are very tolerant of non-biblical teaching. A summary of, of Grace Bible Church's view comes right from our doctrinal statement. And I'll show you that. We definitely and consistently practice primary separation. We do not support missionaries or associate with any apostate groups or denominations. We approach secondary separation, though, as a wisdom issue. That means it's up to each person, each member. You, you have to decide if you're going to call your neighbor who's part of a, an apostate denomination, a Christian, a brother, or not. And that's not something that we would want to dictate as your leaders. So here's our doctrinal statement. Grace Bible Church, uh, what we teach. We also teach that separation from all religious apostasy and worldly and sinful practices is commanded of us by God. It's not even a question. The primary separation is found in Scripture. Look up these passages later. It's right there. Come out from the world. Separate them. Do not be like the world. And if the world has come into the church or denomination, you have to eventually leave it, particularly if you have no opportunity to make a change towards a biblical truth. We believe in primary separation because it is explicitly commanded in Scripture. 
Anything the Bible directly commands us to separate from, we must separate from. So whatever the Bible says, we separate from. And so if that makes us fundamentalists in that sense, then I guess we are. We believe we must separate over anyone who denies a fundamental tenet of the faith. So why do we have just a, a basic statement of faith that every member must agree to? Because of this. The fundamentals are clear in Scripture. Everything essential to saving faith is fundamental. So you have to ask, what is essential? What must a person believe to be a Christian? Or at least not deny. Maybe they don't know that much about the Trinity. But once it's explained, they can't deny it if they're truly born again of the Spirit. Every doctrine we are forbidden to deny is fundamental. So the Bible makes clear what those are. Fundamental doctrines are all summed up in the person and work of Christ. Usually it always comes back to Christ. Christ in his word, Christ in his atonement, Christ in his second coming. Those essentials of the faith. Someone who says, well, this is everything. This is as best it's going to get. Jesus isn't coming back. They've denied something essential that's come up over and over in Scripture. We find Al Mohler's theological triage to be helpful. So this is just one helpful way. I'm not, I'm not saying go believe everything Al Mohler believes. But he came up with this more recently, in the last decade or two. It's helpful. Level one doctrines necessary in order to recognize someone as a true Christian. So how do you know if your friend, family, neighbor, coworker is a Christian? Well, do they believe the essentials, the things necessary? Level two, doctrine is important in how a church functions and is organized. Why do we have different churches? Can't we just all get along? No, because we believe different things about church government, God's sovereignty, baptism, all of these things, if you made everyone join in one big church, that's going to be a mess, and it won't hold together anyway. Doctrine's important for the formation and operation of the church. So level one, all fellow Christians in the world. Level two, each local church, or often sometimes denominations or groups of local churches, have similar thinking. Level three, doctrines we can disagree on and yet still function in the same local church together. So, you know, if Chris wants to wear a blue shirt to church and I want to wear a lighter blue shirt, we're not going to separate over that. You know, we're not going to separate over, should we pick this building or pitch a tent out in the field? And the elders say, we're going to be in this building instead of out in the heat. We shouldn't separate over that. Now, level three gets into legalism, and that's a different subject. Hoping to, to preach a series on that this summer later on legalism. When people start moving level three stuff up to two and one, then you have real problems. And so in conservative churches, this becomes an issue when people think their opinion, their conviction, is really a level one doctrine or level two. Level two disrupts the church. Level one, you basically start casting other people into hell just because they disagree with you on some minor thing. And so that can be a very disruptive. It's very common. It comes down to you know, parenting stuff, school choices, you know, do you cloth diaper or not? You know, just the things that we laugh about sometimes, breastfeeding or not, and things like that, that, that need wisdom, of course. But when you start saying everyone who doesn't agree with me is not a Christian, and you can't pick a specific verse that supports that or more than one, then you run into the category of legalism. And there have been churches who are very legalistic, but on paper look very fundamentally sound. Let's go back now to the new evangelicalism. On the other side of the separatist question, evangelicalism quickly became a movement that didn't separate from anyone at either a primary or secondary level. Evangelicalism, of uh, their fall from orthodoxy, is most clearly seen in two of its original icons, Fuller Theological Seminary and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. So when you think about new evangelicalism, this is probably what you're familiar with. It's the the televised Billy Graham Crusades, it's the seminaries that started in the 50s and 60s. Most of us probably come from that background. Some of us don't. But you were either part of the mainline, mainline liberal denominations or some cult or probably the new evangelicalism. This is where the seeker-friendly church movement came out of. The, a lot of different movements have, have morphed in the last 50, 60 years from this. Let's talk about it. It's defined as a movement by traditionally orthodox Protestants. These are people who agree. They agree with the fundamentals of the faith. They disagreed over all this separation stuff and, and trying to run out and sort of 
live in a cave and be by yourself, particularly in regard to how we separate. That was their big disagreement. They thought we should engage the culture and the world and sort of separate from it. The first book that really talked about this was Carl F.H. Henry. In 1947, he published The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalists. Henry was a conservative. I think he was, he was doing a good thing there. But as time goes on, there's going to be some, some changes in new evangelicalism. Fuller Theological Seminary is founded in 1947. They wanted to engage, particularly these seminaries want to be more academic. Bob Jones was seen as sort of the fundamentalist, and you don't engage the world and you separate from it. But Fuller and Trinity Evangelical Seminary and these others, Gordon Conwell, they're trying to engage the culture and the liberals academically. So they wanted to be more apologetic, and they wanted to give a theological defense of the Bible. They wanted to use their minds to glorify God. They hoped to produce a great number of works doing that. All good. Starts off really well. Within 10 years, some faculty at Fuller, including the founder's own son, Daniel Fuller, are already denying the inerrancy of Scripture. So it starts off on the right path and quickly. And many solid conservative scholars said, that's the whole reason we came here to join this new work, and now it's going liberal. And so many people that I have commentaries on my shelf that were conservative at the time left as a result. They did go on to publish many of various apologetic works even early on. There's a final split from the fundamentalists when Billy Graham started his New York crusade. He started planning for it in 1956. Until then, Billy Graham had gone to Bob Jones University. He was pretty much accepted as a fundamentalist. Then they began, as he started the crusades, they began to be concerned about what's going on there. And in 56, he began to prepare for the upcoming New York crusade, which is really the big one that launches Billy Graham's career there. And they heard some things that concerned them, which we'll look at in a minute. Christianity Today started being published around this time. It's still being published. It's very middle of the road. Some of the articles in Christianity Today are not at all evangelical or biblical. There's a lot of critical race theory and Roman Catholicism is supported there. The founders did not intend that. They, they were Billy Graham and Carl F.H. Henry and other conservative evangelicals. So let's talk about 57 New York Crusade. Here's why it's significant. The methods of cooperative evangelism became very well known. Before that, wasn't quite sure what the crusades and how, how they're made up and how they go. There's a great book we have in our bookstore, which I'll show you in a minute, that covers, about half the book covers this issue. Here's what one historian said. The final division of conservative evangelicalism came as the preparations for the Billy Graham evangelistic campaign in New York City revealed that Graham had fully cast his lot with the established churches, the mainline liberal denominations. By the time of the meeting, May 15, 1957, the division had passed the point where reconciliation was possible. There was little evidence of desire for reconciliation on either side. The New York crusade marked Graham's final acceptance by the Protestant establishment, the mainline establishment, and indeed by American society generally. So he's seen as a fundamentalist. Then this event moves him out of that, and it's a new evangelicalism, and even, I think, broader than what we would think of as evangelicalism. So there's the New York crusade. It starts out in Madison Square Gardens. Within a few days... It, it keeps extending and bigger crowds come. They eventually move it to Yankee Stadium. 100,000 people show up. You can read about, there, there are many concerns with the Crusades. Not that the message was bad. What he said was pointing people to the Bible. It's the practices that went on around it, leading up to it, and how they would counsel people in their conversion and walking forward and things like that. There was a definite change in the leadership policy for the crusade. So the association led by Billy Graham decided to do things differently in New York. The National Council of Churches and other liberal leaders started participating there. Graham said the, that's fine because they're so desperate for converts as well and their methods had been unsuccessful. They could join with him. He would preach the message. When they come forward, he agreed though, as they got counseled, that he would send them back to where they came from. So that was the agreement. The Catholics and the liberal Protestants would work with him if the organization sent them back to the church that they came from. 
So the only difference was they had a conversion experience and then went back there. So in 56, he says, he's being critiqued as this is building up. He says, what difference does it make? Who sponsors a meeting? He said he would go anywhere and be sponsored by anyone as long as he could preach his message unhindered. Which sounds great. I mean, at the face of it, that's not bad. The problem is, it's more than just sponsoring a meeting. Because they're going to sponsor the meeting and help put it on, now they get a say in what's going to happen. Converts went to churches in a very wide variety of theological traditions, including Roman Catholics and liberal Protestants. So let's summarize this new evangelicalism. It said that Christians should engage the culture directly and constructively. We're willing to engage liberals in a positive way. We're embarrassed with the title fundamentalists, so that's why you hear the title as a bad thing these days. Place itself between liberal Protestants and fundamentalists. So the fundamentalists didn't engage the culture. They went off and hid over here and did their own thing. The Protestants said, we accept the world. And so the new evangelicals took a middle path, which most of these, you know, I would say at the time seemed good. Here are the problems. They became too ecumenical. Too ecumenical and reluctant to call out apostate denominations. Over time, the engagement and the desire to be accepted, particularly academically, led people and scholars and commentator writers to not call out apostasy. And they became concerned about social acceptance and intellectual responsibility. Why have most evangelical seminaries gone liberal in the last couple of decades? This type of thing. They would rather be accepted by modern or postmodern today, postmodern thinking. And even the university motto, if you go get your PhD at an evangelical seminary, now you go to look for a job. Well, the biggest job market is universities. And the, most of the universities are not theologically conservative. And so the idea that we don't want to separate too much became entrenched. They became too accommodating. And these aren't just my views. I mean, this is all shown in history. Too accommodating to a perverse generation. Today, it is the new evangelicalism who has brought, not just evolution, I mean, all the liberals agree with evolution, but they've tried to make it palatable. Is it BioLogos? Is that the, the group that tries to make evolution palatable to the new evangelicals? CRT and wokeism, that's all new evangelical movement. The, the liberals had that view a long time ago. What's recent is the new evangelicals bringing this in. They, took, they take mediating positions. So they will often say, well, it's not God's plan. God didn't want people to go into a gay lifestyle. Well, they will say same-sex attraction or gay Christianity is fine. And then they take a middle position on inerrancy and inspiration. So there will be authors, and I just read, I just read in a systematic theology book this last week, where people will say, well, we believe in inerrancy, but then they redefine it completely something different that's not inerrancy. So they'll say, well, we believe in inerrancy, but we believe that it's quite different than the fundamentalists in America believe. And their definition doesn't fit the fact that the Bible is truly without error. I recommend that you read up on this. Don't take my word for it. Ian Murray's book is great. He covers the split between two groups of guys. And this is a wonderful book. Even though it says 1950 to 2000, it goes back and starts with Billy Graham and, uh, or maybe it finishes with Billy Graham and all of his, all of his beliefs in the, the Crusades. And then it talks about the split between J.I. Packer and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Because Packer wanted to remain in the Anglican church. And Lloyd-Jones said, people need to come out. And those two guys used to do a Puritan conference. And they got at odds on that issue and separated. MacArthur goes back to Spurgeon's downgrade controversy and applies it to the seeker-friendly churches today. Ashamed of the gospel when the church becomes like the world. And we don't have time to go through the Pentecostal charismatic movements. But to get a taste for that, of what happened there, especially the Pentecostal itself in the 1900s, read Strange Fire, John MacArthur. The danger of offending the Holy Spirit with counterfeit worship. All right, that's it for church history. It's been a wonderful, how long have we done it? Six months? Six and a half months? Seven months? Yeah, seven months. Frank is teaching the book of Micah. Probably, probably it will be in here. And Ernest is leading a group through Fundamentals of the Faith. And it'll be in one of the classrooms, probably the big one up there. That one's got homework, but it's good homework. Listening to a sermon and filling out your workbook. 
And then I hope to be back teaching in the fall on a class for apologetics. Apologetics. So let's pray. It's been a joy to be in church history class with you. Lord, I'm grateful that we can have wisdom. We want to look back to the word. And we don't want to get in either ditch here. We don't want to be so separate that we can't even talk to anyone else. And we also don't want to accept the world. We also don't want to entertain how can we be more palatable? How can we be more pleasing to academics and and that institution? Just help us to remain in your word and help us to follow what the reformers started and and stay with many of the reformers who, who didn't move into either camp, but stayed true, Lord, to the teaching. And so let's do that as a church. Help us, Lord, to stay faithful always to your word, never doubting it, never criticizing it, always putting ourselves under it, because that's where we stand. In the name of Jesus, amen.